All right, well, welcome if you're new to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, uh, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 with me. Uh, when you come to Luke chapter 8, Luke um, structures his gospel differently than the other gospel writers too. He's one of the three gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are called the synoptics, which means the same view. They're all looking at Jesus. John writes his gospel a little bit differently, a little more evangelistically to get you to, uh, to believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. That's the whole goal of the book of John. Uh, but in the book of Luke, where we're coming to is a very important season in the ministry of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is going to give us today is a parable. Uh, and in the book of Matthew, it's a significant parable because it's the hinge in the book of Matthew around which Jesus' ministry starts to change. From Matthew 13 forward, Jesus starts to preach and teach in parables and to train his disciples for what it is they're going to do when he's gone. So he makes an intentional shift in his discipleship model and in his preaching and teaching model. And you've seen that really through the course of Luke's gospel as Luke has been watching Christ go on itinerant missions throughout the northern part of Israel in Galilee and Capernaum. He's uh, teaching in synagogues, he's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's preaching, and he's teaching. But what you have here in Luke chapter 8 is the first time Jesus starts to speak in parables. Now, when you hear the word parable, you may think of a variety of very popular teachings by Jesus. Everybody knows the Good Samaritan. You know the Good Samaritan? Heard that before? You heard the parable of the prodigal son. You heard that one before. So you have heard parables. It's not very long if you start listing parables before you get to this one. This parable is the sower and the seed, or the parable of the four soils. You've probably heard it before. You've probably heard it referenced before. It's an incredibly popular one. It's included in Matthew, both Matthew, sorry, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their accounts. In fact, when Mark recalls this parable, he says uh, Jesus makes a comment about it. When the disciples ask for understanding, they say, Jesus, we don't understand this parable. And he says, if you don't understand this one, how are you to understand any of them? So in Jesus' mind, this parable is the keyhole through which the kingdom of God is understood and opened up to those who understand what he has to say here. So this parable is the premier parable, the most important one for you to properly understand who Jesus is, what he's been doing, and most importantly, how people have been responding to him. Have you noticed in the book of Luke, everybody is responding to Jesus? They all respond differently, but there's been significant responses to Jesus. The Pharisees have decided that they want to figure out how to kill him, how to destroy him. The disciples have left lucrative fishing careers. Matthew has left his own tax collector career to leave everything and to follow Jesus. These women that we looked at last week who had their lives turned upside down have now committed to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, to the tomb, to the empty tomb, and then into sharing the truth about Jesus and who he is. Everybody has been affected. Everybody has responded. You haven't had one person where the Bible records, and thus Simon saith whatever. You haven't had that. You've had significant response all along the way. And what Jesus does in this parable is show you 
every possible response to what he's doing. So as, as he does that, he's going to explain every single heart in this room today. Every single one of us. None of us gets out of here unscathed by this parable. So if you thought, I wonder if God has something to say to me this morning, you don't have to worry about that question. God has something to say to every single one of us in this room today, no matter what your spiritual background is, no matter what your past history is, no matter whether or not you've stepped inside a church before. Jesus has something to say to you in this parable. All right? So let's pray and ask God for his grace as we understand this here today. Father, for these few minutes, we come seeking understanding. We come asking for you to speak. We come as men and women who have hearts who need to be intersected by the word of God, that uh, there is no more important moment in a human being's life than when their heart intersects with the word of God. And Father, we pause and pray for every single child who's in this room who maybe has never heard a text like this before. We pray for our own hearts that we would be sensitive and receptive to what you would have to say today. Father, we humble ourselves beneath your word. May we receive it as the truth of God that it is. That it would divide our hearts all the way down to soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And when we leave this place more sensitive to what you want to say to us, more in love with the fact that you sent your son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, to die on the cross for our sins, to give us new life, to bring us into a relationship with you, where one day we'll see you face to face. So, Father, we pause and we seek understanding. We seek wisdom. We pray that you would pour it into our hearts and our minds through the power of your spirit and the goodness and the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 8. We are going to be in verses 4 to 15. Luke 8, verses 4 to 15. Y'all there? Okay, good. Here we go. Luke 8. Verse 4, when a great crowd was gathering and people from town to town came to him, he said in a parable. Now, uh, we are almost thrust in Luke's account here into uh, a bustling crowd. We saw at the beginning of chapter 8 that Jesus' ministry took on that itinerant feel. He began to go from city to city and from town to town, talk to a variety of people in a variety of places because his priority was to preach to declare, to herald the truth of the good news, and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That was what he was compelled to do all through the early part of his ministry, starting in chapter 4. So as we open this scene, while we, we might have been a little bit focused personally on the individuals who followed Christ last week, and the 12, and the women who were represented there, we, we, the, 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 um, what's it called? the camera lens pans out. And now we see this great crowd following Jesus. And as I said, this is an incredibly important parable. And what I want you to see right from the beginning is that Jesus gives us this significantly important teaching when his popularity is at the highest. And let me tell you, before, just before we get into this, this is not an easy parable. It is a parable that is meant to get right in your face. 
So Jesus is not swayed by the mass of people that are following him. He saves some of his most difficult and clear teaching from when the crowds are at the biggest. And then Luke gives us really in the beginning of verse 1 here this word parable. Now parable means essentially a comparison. Setting one thing against another to compare what they're like. So what Jesus is going to do is going to put spiritual, theological truth into a package into an illustration, essentially, into a story to draw out some spiritual truths for us. That's what a parable is. A parable is a story with a meaning behind it. So look at verse 5. Let's jump in right away. Here's the parable. Verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Verse 6, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Now, before Jesus comments on his parable, let's just look at it together. Let's look at what we can learn through the illustration Jesus is using. He's using a farming illustration. He's using a sower and a seed illustration. He's using something that's very common in the ancient Near East in an agricultural society. They would all understand sowing, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, reaping. They would all understand that. That is as common to us as streetlights. They would be able to understand the things that are going on when Jesus tells this parable. Hey, here's what a sower would do. A sower would take the bag of seed that he has and he would move throughout his land and he would take seed and as he did it, as he sowed it, he would cast it. And as he casted his seed, what he would do first, I'm sorry, as he casted it, that's the first thing he would do. And then the next thing he would do, commentators believe, is that they would plow it. So that the seed would be broadcasted liberally and then he'd come behind and he'd plow it and it would get folded into the land and folded into the dirt, wait for rain for it to germinate and then it would come up. So Jesus gives us a sowing of seed illustration. Pretty easy so far, right? There's really not a lot of depth. It's a pretty easy illustration to understand. All of us in this room understands what a seed does, how it works, where it needs to be for health. And all of us, uh, really, if you've ever planted anything, we're good at planting weeds in my backyard. I'm really good at that. Uh, My beds have weeds in them. But we also have things that are intentionally cultivated on our back porch. And we have peppers and we have kale and we have cucumbers and tomatoes and a strawberry. We all understand the process of how this works. And what you're going to see as Jesus will interpret this parable in a little bit is that the parable needs interpretation because Jesus isn't going to interpret everything in the parable. Some things in the parable are not readily visible unless Jesus gives us the key to unlock the parable to understand it. So right here, you may even know the interpretation that is coming because maybe you've read your Bible before. But right at the beginning, I want you to see that every parable is obscure. Every parable needs interpretation. And when Jesus tells a parable, Jesus is the one who has to give us the interpretation. Just like if I said we've got three guys and one gal who get in an elevator. They're all dressed in clown outfits. 
One person stares at the ceiling the whole time while the elevator doors close. Nobody touches the button except the woman. The woman touches the button, gets out immediately on the first floor. All the rest of the three clowns go to the top. All of them get out but one, the one who's looking at the ceiling, comes all the way down and he leaves. What's it mean? I mean, don't read this and get super spiritual and go, obviously, I understand this parable. You don't understand the parable. Nobody understands the parable. The people who were listening to Jesus, they could see it, but did they see it? No. They don't understand. Just like my made-up parable makes no sense. All of you could take a shot at interpreting it, and you would get it wrong. Why? Because I just made it up on the spot. I don't even know what it means. It's that good. So there's your parable. But at the end of verse 8, the most important thing in understanding the parable is the command that Jesus gives to go along with the parable. Here's the command. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now here, H-E-A-R, is a word that's going to be used seven times in eight verses. So when we come to a Bible passage like this, and there's a repeated term consistently all throughout the passage, it's a, it's a sign that helps us to understand why this parable is here for us in 2023. Jesus gives this parable at a very particular time to a very particular group of people, his disciples, who are watching his ministry take place. And this parable is going to help the disciples interpret what is happening with the variety of responses that people are giving to Jesus and to his teaching, his miracles, and his ministry. But right from the beginning, I want you to see that there is an invitation to every single person to, un to hear and to understand the word of God. That when God's word goes out, what goes out with it is an invitation from God himself to understand what God has to say to you. Unless you think that God is intentionally trying to confuse you, intentionally trying to hide himself and to obscure himself from you, right from the beginning in this parable, Jesus invites us to hear. Now hearing, it's just like our English word, hear. You can hear a lot of things. Hearing could refer to whether or not our ears work. Hearing could be referring to hearing a case if you're a judge or you're a lawyer. Hearing can refer to noises. Hearing can refer to, in the Bible, hearing of new languages. But oftentimes, hearing is synonymous with obeying. Now, kids, let me just give you an illustration just for a minute. Have you ever had your parents tell you something, and you didn't do it? And your response to them was, I didn't hear you. And the conversation between your parents and you goes something like this. Well, do your ears not work? Why didn't you do the thing that I told you to do? And you know to yourself that you heard them, but you just didn't do it. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about hearing something, but not responding to something. That's the key to understanding everything that we're going to look at here in these soils. In fact, it's been used in Luke's gospel up to this point before. Remember, Jesus, anyone who hears my word and does it, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man who built his house on the rock. That's someone who heard and who heard. Someone who heard and responded to the teaching, the truth, the 
uh, intention of what Jesus was doing through his teaching. And they responded appropriately. So in the beginning, the invitation is to all of us that we all might hear what Jesus is saying. We all might put it into practice. You with me so far? Good. Now, hearing isn't hearing unless there's responding. Amen? That's an important part of what Jesus is about to say. Now let's look at verse 9. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, which I love that the disciples don't get it. Maybe you think if you were a disciple and you were there, you would have been like, good one, Jesus, I got it. Nope. You wouldn't see it either. Because Jesus gave a parable that needs Jesus to interpret it. And I love the fact that the disciples ask. Because it shows us something very important about our own study of the word, our own reading of the word, is that you and I, me, Even though I do this for a living, I have to get comfortable with asking the question when I open up God's word, God, what does this mean? God, would you show me what this means for me, for my life, for my marriage, for my parenting, for my kids? Would you, this truth that is there, God, would you give me understanding? In fact, a significant part of your spiritual growth in life is going to be taking this book and asking God to show, a, show you what it means. Do you know that? You can't go through your Christian life with like a sprinkle of a proverb and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your Christian life can't work like that. Your Christian life has to be a constant, it has to be constantly connected to God's word. It's the Psalm 1 life. It's like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season. It digs deep, it longs deeply, it asks God questions. So that when I come to biblical texts that I don't understand, there has to be points in my Bible reading and in my Christian life where there is reflection, where there's meditation, where there's thoughtfulness in my relationship with God, where I am asking God to give me a greater depth of understanding that I might respond the way I'm supposed to. One of the major problems in Christianity today is a failure to think long and hard about interpreting God's word correctly. Anybody can slap a verse on anything and make it sound good. But to ask a deeper question of God, what does this mean, is inviting a relationship with God and your depth of relationship with him to go deeper in your life. To pause and to have patience To go, God, I don't understand. I just heard the parable and I've been walking with you through your ministry. I've seen you cast out demons, teach in the synagogues, heal the sick, raise the dead, but I don't get it. That is an okay place to be. Because it shows that you don't know everything. You don't totally understand the mind of God. And you have to, like Colossians 2 said, try and learn to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So right at the beginning, here's this parable that Jesus has given. And the disciples ask him, what does it mean? Now, before he gets to the interpretation, he's going to talk to the disciples to tell them something that's very important about who they are and where they are in the scope of Jesus' ministry. Verse 10, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew uh, expands this. Luke really compresses this in his explanation, so I'll try to be brief about it. But essentially, 
what you have as Jesus explains this to the disciples is that the disciples have been given understanding because they have been given Jesus. Jesus has been very clear about sin, repentance, forgiveness, righteousness. He's been very clear about good, about evil. He's been very clear about what God thinks about his ministry. In fact, all of the miracles attest to the fact that God believes that Jesus is the Messiah, which is a very important thing for God to say. When Christ comes up out of the water after his baptism, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So as the disciples are there standing with Jesus, Jesus says, I am evidence of God's grace to you. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it like this, that long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is no greater revelation than what God has given us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. There is no greater revelation. God does not have to go any further than disclosing himself and what he has done through Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, is what Colossians says. Do you know that? And Jesus says, I am evidence of God's willingness to come down into the earth to show you what I am like, to, to give you a picture of heavenly realities. And at this point, the stakes could not be higher. If Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, then you don't need anything else other than Christ. Now, that grace that has been given to the disciples in the person and the work of Jesus is informed by the fact that Jesus now chooses to use parables. In the book of Matthew, Matthew's account of this parable happens at Matthew chapter 13. Because I went to seminary, I know that Matthew chapter 13 comes right after Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Isn't that good? You can write that down. That's true. And one of the things that happens in Matthew chapter 12 is that the Pharisees are so incensed at Jesus. They're so frustrated at him. They're so mad at what he is doing to disrupt the spiritual, religious culture of the day that they are at the, their wits end and they finally say to Jesus, you do miracles by the hand of Satan. We are so unwilling to believe that you are the Son of God, the Messiah sent from heaven, that we would rather attribute what you do to Satan himself. And at that point, Jesus goes, the ministry changes. And then his ministry goes to parables. And it's explained in Matthew much better than Luke does here. But Luke says this, they're given in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So parables are given for two reasons. One is to reveal what God is doing through the person and work of Jesus. For you to see more clearly, as you'll see in this parable in a minute, we can see more clearly what is happening as God's word through Jesus hits the human heart. But they're also given to conceal because some people want no more to do with Jesus, and as they hear his parables, they get more and more frustrated, more and more attuned to reject what he has to say, because we don't believe that he is who he says he is. 
So keep your finger in Luke real quick and let's turn back to Isaiah. Let me show you this in Isaiah. You've, you've probably heard the, the Isaiah story in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Where he's, he sees God high and lifted up, right? Uh, the angels fly to him and give him a coal. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the, the, the glory of the Lord. And he's in the temple and his throne fills the temple. All this that kind of stuff. That's the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. And then we have this beautiful spot in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. He says, hey, God is saying, who will I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah goes, me, I'll go, pick me. I've been redeemed, I've been restored, my sins have been forgiven. This is awesome, I get to be used of God. But nobody ever preaches Isaiah 6, 9 through what's following. And I'll show you why, because this is exactly what Jesus quotes. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, what do you think Isaiah wants to say? Man, I can't wait to tell people about Jesus, God, forgiveness, sin, salvation. It's going to be awesome. I've been called by God, a prophet of God. This is fantastic. Verse 9, keep on hearing, but don't understand. What? Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Wait a minute. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears. All right, hear, I'm sorry, see, see with their ears. Did you catch that? Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant. Houses without people in the land is a desolate waste. What? I'd like to be used by God. You're going to harden people until I judge them for their sin and they get taken out of the land. I was reading the end of 2 Chronicles the other day. The end of 2 Chronicles. You need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. The end of 2 Chronicles uh, is the judgment upon God's people after refusing to listen to the prophets of God. The pre-exile prophets before the nation of Israel is taken into captivity in Assyria and Babylon, ultimately Persia, then Greece and Rome is preceded by the preaching ministries of Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. Yeah. Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Isaiah. The end of 2 Chronicles, after all of those men have spoken to the people of God, says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. Now come back to Luke. What did Jesus just say? When I teach in parables, there will be some who want nothing to do with me. To you, it has been given to know and understand Christ, but there will be those who want nothing to do with me ultimately. Just like Isaiah said. Now, let's look at the parable. Let's look at the interpretation. You okay so far? Here's the interpretation. Verse 11. Now the parable is this, which is interesting. Jesus gives you one sentence to what the parable is, and then he explains the entirety of the parable, but the anchor for our interpretation is everything he says here. This is the key that unlocks the understanding of the parable. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Well, no, Steve, it's not interesting. I understood that and I knew that from the beginning. But wait a minute. We just ignored a major character in the parable, didn't we? Wouldn't you think that you'd start with the person of the sower? No? 
Why is it that Jesus would take time to give us the parable, tell us about the sower, who goes out as the one who's sowing the seed, but then doesn't mention the sower at all? Why? Because every good farmer knows that he is not a skillful farmer unless he is reliant upon the power of what resides in the seed. Let me apply it. It doesn't matter who the preacher is. It matters what the preacher is preaching. Do you hear me? You don't want to go to a church to hear what Steve has to say. You want to go to a church, and I, I don't want to go to a church that has, says what I want to say, that hears what I have to say. I want to go to a church that tells me what God says. That's what I want. That's what I want for my wife. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for my family. I want to go to a place that it has its, its ears and its heart tuned to ask the question, what does God say? And right at the beginning, though we know that the sower and the seed are united in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what is it the disciples are going to have to do when Jesus is gone? They're going to have to preach the word. Their hope is going to be in the word. When Luke writes the book of Acts, he continuously refers to the fact that the word of God is expanding and growing. Why? Because they are consistent in preaching and teaching the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is the seed and everything that we're about to see that comes forward in this parable is about the reaction and the response of the soils to the seed. So the seed is the key. The sower is not the key. There's no strategy given about the sower. Jesus tells us nothing about irrigation, the water cycle, manure, weeding. He tells us nothing about how to get the seed to grow, proper planting techniques. In fact, this sower is almost negligent in how random he is and how effusive he is with sowing the seed. He's throwing the word everywhere. It's a reckless distribution of seed. Jesus said the sower doesn't need technique. He doesn't need strategy. All he needs is the seed. That's the point. That's what unlocks the parable. So, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And everything else rises or falls based on its relationship to the seed. So, let's look at the first soil. Let's have Jesus interpret it for us. Verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. So now the soils are people. You with me? The soils now are the hearts of humans. Here's our first soil. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Matthew chooses to make the point that the word is not understood and therefore the devil comes and takes away the word so that they may not be saved. But either way, anytime the word of God is preached, there is a spiritual battle happening. You may not understand it. You may not see it. You may not even perceive any amount of the spiritual battle that is happening. Today, right now, at 1059, in downtown Charleston, in Citadel Square, there is a spiritual battle being waged for the hearts and minds of men and women and kids in this room. Right now. You didn't think about that. You didn't, maybe didn't expect that. You might not believe in the spiritual forces of darkness at all. Jesus said, when the word is preached, the devil is active. 
to take it, to take it away, to dismiss it, to ignore it, to think, to think it's not really the thing that I need today. It's not that important to me. It's not that valuable to me. I got a lot more important things to do. Jesus' words are too hard to understand. I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to pass on it. Thank you very much. Later on in the epistles, Peter tells us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What is the goal of Satan? To close your Bible. If I can get you to close your Bible, no matter how successful you are in every single other sphere of life, your spiritual life is dead. The longer I am in ministry, the more I am aware of this reality when it comes to what I do. My wife and I will talk from time to time. She'll have women in our home to read God's word together. And it's always amazing to me the kind of days she has when she gets ready to go and do that that night. The spiritual, emotional, social, circumstantial state of our children's hearts that day, challenges that show up when she gets ready to open the Bible with another group of women. When I get ready to step into the pulpit and I believe that God has something to say to our church because of where we are and what we're studying in the word, you would be stunned at how often I face discouragement, unbelief, questions over whether or not I'm effective, whether or not God will really speak through what I have to do today, whether or not there will really be God's word impacting your life. It is every single week. You ever get up? You ever look at yourself on January 1st and you go, I'm making a change. And then what happens? It snows six inches in Charleston. And you're like, it must not be the will of God. <laughs> right? Spiritually, it's just like that. Are you surprised that you face opposition to spiritual growth in your life? Don't be. You have an enemy, an enemy, an adversary who seeks to discourage and to get you to ignore God's word. And that's where Jesus starts. Are you encouraged yet? So there's your first soil. Let's look at soil number two, verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, they fall away. While emo our emotional lives are fickle, amen? I feel different things from Monday to Thursday to Tuesday to morning to evening to full or empty to discouraged or encouraged. My feelings are all over the place. I get irrationally excited about things I should not. I get irrationally discouraged about things I should not. And Jesus makes a point to say when the word is preached, you ever hear a great sermon, you walk out snapping and singing and glory to God in the highest. It happens around Christmas. And we all know the songs, right? Jesus makes a point to say they receive it with joy. There's lots of excitement. There's lots of hype. There's lots of uh, emotional intensity. But then what happens? Look at what he says. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe how long? For a while. Why? Because what happens? Because you come off the emotional high. You don't feel the way you once felt. Christians, you remember the early part of your Christian life? When you felt like you were unstoppable? That the devil couldn't slow you down? That no circumstance could diminish your joy? And Jesus said in the beginning they received a joy, but after a while... And in a time of testing, 
They fall away. Matthew makes an interesting point when he talks about this soil. He says that uh, when testing and persecution arises on account of the word. Have you found that sometimes you don't, your feelings don't go along with your believing? Amen? There are some things that I know are true, that I know are obedience, and they don't feel that good to do. No, just me? You experience that challenge? But now when persecution, Jesus has already warned the disciples about this. Remember that? Blessed are you when people revile you on account of the Son of Man. Remember he's just said that. He said there's coming days when you will be persecuted for holding to the belief that I am who I say I am. And Jesus said when the word goes out, there are some who believe and they hear it with joy, but when it starts to cost them something, they wither. When persecution and testing rises on account of the word, on account of you having to say uh, what you believe, on account of you having to hold the line and your integrity, they wither. And then time of testing, they fall away. See, for our Christian lives to move toward maturity, we're going to have to move at some point beyond our emotional validation to really get to spiritual fruitfulness, to really get to spiritual depth. So the first one, devil takes away. Number two, the second one, our emotions dry up and we wither. Number three, as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Have you noticed that crabgrass is an active agent? Do you know that? Do you know that weeds have an agenda? And it's not to stay out of your beds? I have weeds all over my yard, in various parts of my yard. And I always want to beat back the curse of creation, but I'm just so dang tired. So I go, ah, you win. Right? You can last this season, but winter is coming. Look at the thorns. First, the cares. It's the worries of life. How often do our mental energies go to the things that we worry about? Be anxious for what? Nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Remember that? See, your worries are coming for you, whether you like it or not. Your worries are going to crawl on you at 6 a.m. in the morning when your eyes open before you even get that cup of coffee. And they're going to be na 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 your life and your heart, right? That's how they all are for all of us. Two, wealth, riches, accumulating it, managing it, retaining it, managing it, focusing on it, desiring it. All has a way of choking your spiritual life. Finally, another thorn, simply the pleasures of life. How often do we ask, what do I want to do today? How often do the pleasures and the desires of your life have the first and last word in your life? Rather than the question, what does God want? What does God say? What does Jesus think about my sexuality, about my money, about the things that I desire for my life? What does Jesus have to say 
about my wealth? What does Jesus have to say about the worries that are crawling into my heart and trying to choke out my spiritual life and my spiritual sensitivity to the word? Because Jesus says it's there. And while you might be a little bit sensitive to the fact that there is spiritual warfare out there, a lot of us don't take these as seriously as we might spiritual warfare. We might not give as much credit to the cares and the wealth and the pleasures in our life. We'll give a lot of credit to Satan because we know he's out there. We know he's got an agenda. We know it's anti-Christian. But we don't give a lot of credit to the wants, the pleasures, and the riches, do we? If there's one that worries me for our church in a vacation destination like Charleston, South Carolina, it's this one. It's that your spiritual life would slowly be strangled by the things you want, the toys you can achieve, the land you can buy, the house you can build. And that slowly, inevitably, over time, your spiritual life gets less and less sensitive to the word of God because the seed is trying to grow with thorns and they're both in the same place at the same time. And inevitably, the, seed, the thorns are going to choke the word. Now, one of the things that you may not have noticed about these seeds up to this point is the element of time that Jesus really hasn't mentioned. When the seed goes out, the first one is immediately devoured by the birds. Did you see that? There's no meditation, no reflection on the word. It goes out, it's gone. It's trampled, it's gone. It's considered as worthless and trampled by man. It's picked up by birds, just like Satan does. He takes away understanding, and there's really no effect to the seed whatsoever because it's sown on this hard path. It's like trying to sow strawberries on the sidewalk. It's not going to work. Now the next one is you receive the gospel, you receive the word of God with joy. But then a time of testing comes. It's just for a while. But then the third soil, it says they go their way. Steve, I've received the word of God. I've believed what Jesus has said. Now I'm going out to do my life, but I don't recognize the threats to fruitfulness in my life. I don't recognize the thorns and the agenda they have to choke out my spiritual life. So at this point, the time element is only getting longer and longer. Amen? You with me on that? And now we're about to look at the fourth, so fourth soil. Now the fourth soil takes the longest. The fourth soil has the longest time component to it. I know that's discouraging because I like my spiritual life like a microwave. I like 30 seconds, no longer, no less. I'll wait the 30 seconds because I'm a patient man of God with integrity. But it better not be 32 seconds. And one of the underestimated realities in our quest for real, spiritual, lasting fruit is our attentiveness over the long haul. It's our willingness to, to get up in the morning and to seek God's face and to close the word and go, God, give me understanding and now do it for 60 years. Soil number four. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word do what? They hold it fast. They hold it fast. Have you been to that point in your spiritual life? Have you been at the place 
like Peter was when Peter hears Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and all of his disciples start to leave and Peter and Jesus turns and looks at the closest ones, the ones who've been with us the longest, the ones who he's been investing in. He presses his finger into their chest and go, are you going to leave too? And you feel Peter's chest heave as he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying because nobody else does. And he looks Jesus in the eye and he says to Jesus, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. Have you been there? You God, I don't understand my worries. I don't understand my anxieties. But where else am I going to go because you have the word of life? Lord, I know that my desire for riches is choking my spiritual life. I know that I haven't been the man or woman I need to be when I had to take a stand for integrity about who you are. But where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't remember who it is. One of the great teachers and preachers at the end of his life. Maybe it was John Newton. But he put on his tombstone that I am a great sinner, but he is a great savior. They hold it fast. I've got nowhere else to go. There's one anchor. There's one hope. There's one guy who rose from the dead. There's one guy crucified for sinners. There's one guy who says, trust me. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And they bear fruit, how? With patience. See, the temptation all through these is to make the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, one of many good things. But Jesus said, it's holding it fast. It's holding the one thing fast. It's holding on to the fact that I am who I said I am. That I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. So as we close, I, I want you to, the temptation when you read this parable is to look at it and go, which soil am I? But I really don't think that's the point of this. Do you know that? Because, gosh, even I'm tempted to go like, ah, oh, come on, good soil. Did I win? Right? Because the key to what Jesus has to say here is the command that he gave earlier in the passage. The key is whether or not you're willing to hear the word of God. That's the key. I don't know what soul you are. But I do know that I have a command here from Jesus Christ that says, hear it, hold it fast, bear fruit with patience. Let me just say this. As you do that, as you get up tomorrow morning, whether you read the, mor the Bible in the morning or in the night or how you read it, wherever you at, let me tell you that what the confidence that we have in this parable is that fruit is guaranteed. If you set your face to seek God, if you ask and cry aloud for understanding, if you open the Bible and say, God, I want to know you, I want to obey you, I want to understand what you have to, me to, will have to say to me today, you are guaranteed spiritual fruit. That's why the disciples get this parable. So that they would know, we're going to sow liberally, and we are confident that God's word will accomplish what he set forth for it to do. So, Father, we pause 
and ask for any of us who are in this room here this morning who uh, are not sure where they stand with you, I pray that they might hear the hope of a passage like this and believe that Jesus Christ has come to die on the cross for sinners. We remember and consider the truth that Paul said that I delivered to you of first importance that Jesus Christ died for sinners. What good news that is. Father, may that be the truth that uh, inhabits this pulpit in this church, no matter who stands here, that the word of God would go forth, that men and women would, would be confronted with their need for a savior and that they might find redemption and forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. So, Father, make our hearts as sensitive as this good soil. For those who are in this room who need to hold fast once again, I pray that they would be reminded of the goodness of Christ, that they would be reminded of the truth of God, that even now you would bring scriptures to mind to shape uh, the way that they look at their worries and their wealth and their pleasures. That even now, as they're facing the crisis, uh, maybe an emotional crisis in their life, that you would draw them back to knowledge of who you are and what you have to say to them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.